Welcome to another episode of Adding Context, a podcast of compelling conversations centered on advancing and enhancing the human experience. I am your host, Michael Bollins. Welcome back to another episode of Adding Context. Today I'm talking to an old friend of mine, John Vigorito. John, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and what you do? Hey, uh, like Mike said, I'm John Vigorito. Uh, I am a first officer for JetBlue Airways. Um, I fly the Airbus 320 and 321 aircraft. I've been there for, uh, it'll be six years in February. And prior to that, I was at um, an airline called ExpressJet Airlines, which was a pretty big airline that nobody's ever heard of. It was a regional carrier. I was there for nine years. I was a first officer for six and a captain for three. Uh, Before that, I was a flight instructor for about a year. And uh, that was uh, right out of college. A lot of things I want to unpack in there. Um, obviously, going from one airline to another, you're less likely to have that complete lateral transfer. How long? Oh, there, there is no lateral transfer in the industry. Starting from the bottom every time you change? Absolutely. It's got to um, suck. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, uh, it, it's just a, a matter of seniority and Every airline has its own seniority list, and when you go through the door, you get your number, and your entire livelihood is based on where you sit on the seniority list. Got it. And uh, if you go to a new airline, you're back at the bottom of their seniority list. Let's uh, kind of back up a little bit. Um, yeah. <clears throat> I knew you th- from high school. Um, mm-hmm. I have to say I was a, a fan of yours because you were the goaltender for our our hockey team, which sadly doesn't exist anymore, at least into the capacity that it was when you played. Right. You still play hockey? Uh, I try to as much as I can. Uh, my schedule is such that it, it doesn't really allow me to uh, join a league because I'm working random days throughout the week. Right. Um, so what I've been doing, there's actually um, you know groups on Facebook. Everybody's looking for a goaltender. Um, so I'll fill in here or there. Somebody will post, hey, I need a goalie at this rink, and uh, and I'll, I'll fill in here and there. But uh, I try. <laughs> yeah, it's the uh, the one benefit to being a goaltender I noticed is uh, you're, there's always a high demand, especially for quality goaltenders. Um, yeah, the, legs, the legs don't stretch quite as far as they used to. <laughs> <laughs> or as fast. <laughs> Not as easy to exactly. get up. So you, um, where did you go when you left Heightstown? Uh, so after I graduated, I was um, I got a late start at organized hockey. I didn't really start organized hockey until junior year. I wanted to play collegiate hockey really bad. I thought my best shot would be at a Division three program that was just starting uh, their program. So I went to a small school, Manhattanville College. They're up in Purchase, New York, uh, by White Plains. I tried walking onto the team. Uh, it did not go well because the coach had already scouted guys who had been playing juniors for years after high school. Um, I was studying computer science. I figured it was something that was secure that I kind of understood. Um, in that time, I also started my flight lessons on the side, and I ran out of money because it is a fairly expensive endeavor. It um, is. So then uh, after two years there, I, I had to kind of make a decision to keep going with computer science, which I didn't find all that um, fun, 
or transfer to a different school altogether and get my degree in commercial aviation. So that's what I did. I transferred to the University of North Dakota um, in 2000, August of 01, the month before 9-11. And um, I did all my flying as fast as I could to get out into the airline world. And uh, that's, that's kind of where it went from, from Heightstown. What kind of impact did... 9-11 have with your schooling did it did it affect anything or it was kind of it um it did affect there was a lot of people that um chose other pathways a lot of uh aviation students uh went over to we had a fairly uh large air traffic control program as well um so a lot of uh kids would went over to the air traffic control program uh pursue different things um, at the time, I didn't really know if the airline thing was the right fit for me. I kind of wanted to do a corporate thing. After doing more research on that kind of lifestyle, I kind of uh, the, the airline doors seemed to be open the widest and the the, be- the easiest way to, to move up. So that's what I pursued. Um, but I um, in the actual. Um, day-to-day of the schooling 9-11 didn't change a whole lot other than everyone laid off everyone stopped hiring so the pipeline kind of came to a halt for a a few years got it so people went from a stressful position of being a pilot to a super stressful position of being the (laughs) airline uh, air traffic control Uh, yeah what uh what's what's the difference between a, a commercial pilot and an airline pilot uh, so really, any time you're getting paid to fly, you are um, using your commercial privileges. So you need uh, a commercial pilot's license. So once you get your commercial pilot's license, you can uh, do whatever you need to do to get paid. Now, when I left school, all you needed was your commercial pilot's license, obviously a multi-engine rating. That's, that's a separate rating you do to fly uh, aircraft with uh, more than one engine. And then you needed a certain hour minimum that was set by whatever airline, uh, by the company, by whatever that specific airline needed. Um, So you just had to work. You had to build up your hours. The easiest way to do that was to become a flight instructor so you didn't have to pay for the hours anymore. (laughs) Um, So when I got out, all you needed was the commercial pilot's license and whatever number of hours the airline you wanted to work for was saying was their minimums. Now um, it's different. There's uh, there's new regulations in place as a result of uh, the Colgan uh, crash 340, Colgan 341, or no, 3407 in Buffalo um, that put a lot of um, new restrictions on the number of hours. I think it's now it's 1500 hours unless you come from uh, a collegiate program. It's a little bit less. It might be a thousand. Um, but that all came out after I had already been at the airlines. So you kind of got grandfathered in. I, yeah. I had a, uh, a stint where I was actually working towards getting my pilot's license. And I remember that. I didn't finish it partially because my instructor was working towards, you know, the similar position of you. He was trying to do more of the Mm -hmm. private commercial airlining, Mm -hmm. um, which is probably how I should have phrased that question before. Um, (laughs) 
but uh, he was putting in time, so he started slowly canceling our flights so he can go down South Jersey to his simulator. And then once he hit all this time there, he's like, yeah, I'm out. And I kind of got left high and dry. So I at least the got to do my position is, is fickle like that. Yeah. It's a revolving door. It, it, I noticed that. Um, I was just happy that I got to do my takeoff and landing solo before. I... Hey, that's, that's a huge milestone. <laughs> yeah. It was, I would literally was really close to being able to test out. Um, I needed to do a couple cross countries and uh, I think I needed to do a few night night flights and that mm-hmm. was really all the flying time that I needed. I already had amassed the hours. I just needed that and my uh, my testing. That's but, pretty much where I ran out of money too before I went to UND. So with the collegiate program, your tuition covers your flight time, your checks and mm-hmm. all the other testing no, stuff. Well, that that's a whole other issue really i i had no at the time i had no financial education and my my parents uh had nothing saved for college so um i did the financial aid thing and you know every semester it was uh, well your financial aid doesn't cover your flying because it's separate from tuition here fill this form out and i fill the form out and magically $10,000 appears in my flight account and I do my flying for the semester or the next semester. And then the cycle repeats itself. Um, so a lot of it was covered by student loans, both, uh, uh, private subsidized and unsubsidized. And, uh, it really, really handcuffed us for a while. So when you started with, uh, express jet, <clears throat> yeah, you start out as, as the, uh, as a cadet or a trainee? As, well, it's um, so you st- there's only two pilot positions. There's okay. a first officer and there's a captain. Um, so when you're a new hire, you go to um, training because when you get into turbojet aircraft, every turbo pa- turbojet-powered aircraft has its own license or its own rating. So you have to go through all the simulators, all the training, the ground school, and get checked out in that specific airplane. Um, so that takes about six or eight weeks uh, to do. And then you fly with what they call a Czech airman who uh, fly. He's your captain for the first couple of trips to make sure you are where you need to be. Um, and then they sign you off and you're off to the races. And you're a first officer. Ready to go. Mm-hmm. So obviously the size of the aircraft changes your ratings to a degree. Do you have to get a special rating um i know you mentioned with the multi-engine aircrafts and i know vaguely remember that there's all different kinds of little things the the vfr the ifr yeah what things do you have to do i guess uh continue education or or training that you need to do to keep up to date or is it just kind of covered by your fly time no every year actually mine's coming up here uh, in december every year we go into the simulator for three or four days and uh, we go through all the procedures we go through all the emergencies engine fires failures loss of direction of control pretty much your worst day on the job and it's just like nonstop because they they try to get everything in and you only have a limited amount of a sim time so you're just you know engine failure after engine failure after engine failure and um just to get you up to speed and uh, then you're good for another year also we have quarterly training that we do excuse me, um, quarterly training that we do, um, distance learning on, on the computers. 
that goes through uh, the different operations, a refresher of the season. So, you know, right before, you know, in the uh, fall, we'll get uh, training on winter operations and de-icing procedures. And uh, so just really season, seasonal specific type training. Do you um, get clear you enjoy your job? Um, Very much. What kind of difference scheduling wise is it from your schedule doing you know, passenger uh, flights as opposed to say, you know, FedEx and UPS that are, you know, they land, they load up, they take off and it's just a cycle where it seems to be a more of a, a routine flight uh, flight schedule. No, I think actually they're, it's, it's a very similar system. They're all FedEx and UPS. They're all run just like any other airlines are. Um, so you'll have a certain number of pilots that are, uh, what we would call line holders or you, you bid on your trips for the month. And then there's the contingent of pilots that are on call or on reserve in case something happens, uh, an airplane gets stuck somewhere or a pilot has to call in sick. There are the guys that are on reserve that'll come in and fill in uh, for that role. Um, the difference really is knowing where you're going to go, uh, having a say in which trips you fly. Uh, the reserve guys just have to be at home, or I shouldn't say at home, uh, within two hours of the airport. Usually, two to three hours of the airport, waiting for the call to get you know to get to the airport and go. Um, so that's really the, the two differences between, and like I said, the airline, the commercial airlines and FedEx and UPS, they're all run pretty similarly. Where you get the differences is uh, when you get to like corporate aviation and um, and private aviation where you're pretty much at the beck and call of the owners or wherever your passenger is for that day. Right. I've seen, um, There's at least from my perspective, it seems to be a, an uptick in private airline companies, the, the you know, smaller jets, the jetliners, um, I'm guessing that they would pay probably significantly more because you're essentially at the beck and call. Um, and the clientele it, is going to be vastly different. It, it really, it, it's such a varied, uh, experience because there are, uh, big corporate flight departments from big companies like Walmart that, that they too run their airline or their operation like an airline. Or there's, you know, uh, Joe Rich guy who has an airplane and he doesn't know how to fly, so he's going to um, hire a pilot. Or there's companies that, you know, you can just go and rent a Learjet from with the flight crew. And so it's it's such a varied experience from company to company. So what was it like for your first flight as captain? Uh, my first flight as captain, stressful. <laughs> <laughs> and it really, and there, there was really no need for it to be stressful other than it was my first flight. It's kind of like uh, your first solo in a small airplane when you might have something, a question or something, or you, you want some reassurance that what you're doing is right. And you look over and your instructor's not there. <laughs> You know, for six and a half years, I was a first officer. And if I ever had a question or anything, I could look to the left and there's the captain. He knows exactly what to do. And then you get in your first flight as a captain and you look to the left and all you see is your reflection in the window <laughs> staring right back at you. <laughs> there's your answers. Find them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, uh, you know, you rely on your training and, and uh, the more 
the more you do, the more natural it becomes. And then it's just like, you know, driving your car. What are, uh, I guess, some of the, your more f- preferred places to land, uh, whether it be for the scenery or because it's an easy airport to land in? Um, easy is boring. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I always like a good challenge. There, there used to be a lot of uh, airports that had really cool what they call visual approaches, where if the weather was good enough, uh, you just fly by ground reference. Uh, a famous one is the Potomac visual down in uh, Washington, D.C., into D.C.A., where you had to be over the Potomac River, and it winds and it turns just prior to uh, turning final to the runway, and you have to be at a certain altitude by a certain spot by over a certain bridge in order for it to work out in a stable manner. Um, but a lot of those, uh, approaches now have gone with new technology, uh, to GPS approaches. We call them RNAV or area navigation approaches, and they're all based by GPS and the waypoints are all pre-programmed into, um, into the computer. And those approaches, you're a lot, typically an approach is a straight course lined up with the runway. Right. But now the technology with GPS, now they can do curves and turns. And so you set up the airplane uh, to fly an RNAV approach and it, it kind of does it for you. You just have to watch it. Um, but I really, back in my expression days, I did that approach a lot. That was a lot of fun going into DCA. Um, San Diego, I really enjoyed the town and the airport. Um, it's kind of a smaller, more challenging uh, runway. Um and then the scenery down in the Caribbean islands, uh, like St. Lucia, is is amazing. Uh, and, and every airline, every island is is beautiful in its own way down there. So it's it's always right. fun to go see, uh, go see stuff down there. How long does it normally take for you to go through your pre uh, pre flight checklist and to do all the programming and everything? Yeah, so it's it's about an hour. I would say, I mean, you could get it done in 45 minutes if you had to go run and get a coffee and breakfast. Um, but our show times or our report times are scheduled for um, the first flight of your trip is scheduled for an hour. And that's for you to, uh, in addition to all the pre-flight stuff with the airplane, to update your manuals. So everything's on iPad now, so it's a click of the button and everything right. kind of updates itself. Uh, all of our Jeppesen navigational charts get updated. Our company manuals get updated. So they give us a little extra time to update all those before we head to the airplane. Um, but then getting to the airplane and getting the pre-flight walk around done and programming all the computers, it's about 45 minutes. Got it. <laughs> Which yeah. we're not getting paid for, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're not. That's not part of your, no. you're only paid for no. the time you're actually like taxiing yeah, actually, and, we're, and in the we're air. All hourly. Yeah, we're all hourly and the pay starts when the main cabin door is closed and the parking brake is dropped. That's when the clock starts. Wow. I didn't realize that. That seems like they're getting a lot yep. of free time out of you. They are. But uh, as you get um, uh, to the higher, um, to the bigger airplanes and the bigger airlines, the the hourly pay is commensurate with the work that you do. Got it. Um, I can imagine... Just from my experience, I mean, the highest I've been is maybe 4,500 feet. The mm-hmm. view you have, it's got to be expansive and, and amazing. And I know we, we've talked recently about flying in between two layers of clouds and how 
the pictures that I've seen that looks awesome. And then you had to go and show me up and take a picture when you were in, in that position. Yes. Um, <laughs> what, uh, do you prefer the big planes? Do you, do you still dabble with the smaller planes? I have been itching to get back into the smaller airplanes. Uh, it was so much fun. Um, the bigger airplanes, it's, um, it's, it's so regulated. You have to be off the gate at a certain time. Um, you have to go to this place, to this place, to this place. There's really no room for exploring. Um, so I really like, uh, the smaller aircraft where you could just, you know, if you have a couple hours, you could just go punch holes in the sky, go get a hamburger at a different airport, go buzz the shore hundred uh, or something like that. Yeah. So, uh, I, I do miss that. And, uh, I was supposed to, I was scheduled to upgrade to captain at JetBlue in June, but because of the pandemic, everything pretty much got canceled. So, uh, that was going to be one of my, uh, endeavors after I upgraded to captain to get back into the small aviation uh, general aviation flying. Got it. So you don't, when you actually fly into say, you know, uh, I think you told me you were flying to San Juan the other day. Um, yesterday. Yeah. You don't get to any time there. You're just a quick turnaround of unloading, fueling up, doing your check again and bouncing back out. Uh, well, it depends. So, uh, yesterday we flew from Philadelphia to San Juan and then I overnighted in San Juan. So we go to the hotel uh, last night was, uh, I think it was like a 14 hour overnight and, uh, came back at, uh, we left at eight o'clock this morning from San Juan and then, uh, came in, uh, to Kennedy today. Got it. So you flew from so. Philly and landed in Kennedy and then I guess hopped or commuted. We were talking about that before the difference of what yeah. commuting means for, you know, me and most other people commuting is getting in your car, driving from your house to your work for you. Commuting right. is just being at whatever airport you need to be at. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a little different because the airline really doesn't care where you live as long as you're in place for your trips. So like for instance, the trip I just finished today, um, my captain lived in St. Louis. So after we got done today, he was going to now again, because of the pandemic, a lot of, frequency of flights have been cut. So where there used to be three or four direct flights from Kennedy to St. Louis on XYZ airline that he could jump on. Now he's got a two legged through Chicago and then to St. Louis and then drive to wherever he lives. Um, What's the, the longest nonstop flight you've piloted? Uh, for me, it was a flight from Boston to San Francisco and it ended up being just over seven hours. And there was, um, the in the wintertime, the prevailing winds aloft go from uh, west to east. They're easterly winds. So you always have a headwind going out to the west coast. The jet stream in the wintertime is usually further south, like going across the United States. Got it. And that's the, the strongest wind. So our flight plan that day went out of Boston straight north into Canada then west over northwest of San Francisco and then southwest into San Francisco. It was, it seemed like an eternity, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was just, just over seven hours. So you're primarily continental United States. Yeah, we do. Uh, we don't do any Canada 
but we do a lot of Caribbean nations, uh, Central American nations, South American nations. Uh, we do have plans to start Europe next year. Hopefully, um, the recovery is underway in uh, in such a way that we could make that uh, feasible. But they're saying right now they're planning for, I believe, the end of the summer of 2021 to go over to uh, England. That's going to require getting bigger jets than what they have now, or can they feasibly do no, that? No, actually, what they have? yeah, uh, Airbus has created a, the Airbus 321, which we currently fly. They put new engines on it that were, that are more efficient, and uh, they have a, a couple extra uh, fuel tanks in there. So they call it a long-range version where it can make it to uh, to England, probably not so much deeper into Europe, but I think they just wanted to use something that all of our pilots are already trained on, all of our mechanics are already trained on. So it made the cost of getting to Europe, getting our foothold into Europe a little bit easier see how it goes, and then they were going to invest in bigger ones later on. Got it. So what are some of, I guess, the, the bigger myths about flying and being a, a commercial airline pilot that you've heard that either make you laugh or infuriate you that you would care to kind of debunk? I, I love the term air pockets. Air pockets for air for pockets. turbulence. For turbulence, everyone said, "Oh, we hit an air pocket." I, I'm not exactly sure what an air pocket is, <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, you know, turbulence is it, it happens uh, in nature. Uh, whenever you have a change of direction or speed of wind, you're gonna you're gonna hit a little speed bump here or there. Um, obviously, they're more prevalent with weather with thunderstorms because then you have a, a vertical component. Uh, to the air, and it's, uh, it becomes more unstable. Right. But there's no such thing as an air pocket. Um, or also relating to turbulence, when uh, somebody says, you know, we dropped a thousand feet, when there's really no way of knowing that they dropped a thousand feet to begin with, and I've never dropped even a fraction of that in turbulence. <laughs> um, it just kind of feels that way sometimes. I was fortunate that I never really, I mean, a little Piper Cub is, is going to give you some rough rides for the most part, but that's because it's such a, it's basically a tin can with wings yeah, and a little uh, pocket engine in it. But a fun tin can with wings. Yeah, it is. I mean, like I said, I, the highest I've been up is you know, 4,500 feet, but taking off from Robbinsville, you know, as soon as we're, before I even, you know, get out of my, my cl- hit my full climb, you know, if I look south, I can see Philadelphia and Atlantic City. If I look north, I can see New York City, and I'm not even 100 feet in the air. So I, I can only imagine how much more of a vision, a field of vision you have with the entire country, especially on good clear days when you're you know, flying at the height you guys are. Yeah, definitely on a good clear day, you could see probably 100 miles. So what, kind of sticking with the, the, the vein of flying, what are some of your favorite movies that have to do with, with flying in general? Because oh, I, <laughs> I have a list. I have a list of movies that you know they, they say are like some of the, the better movies that either revolve in an aircraft order or something. So I, I want to see if you had any favorite movies that took place in an aircraft. Oh, man. Um, well, you can't pass up a good comedy, so all the airplane movies are <laughs> right up there 
uh, it's funny because we when we uh, land, if if the weather is like zero visibility, our airplane does have a capability to auto land. But if we can, we land by hand, unless we have to let it auto land. So uh, a very common joke is, uh, you know, you, you take off the autopilot when you go to land, and the other guy says, "Good luck, we're all counting on you." <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, it doesn't have the inflatable, uh, inflatable no, there's pilot no pop auto. out. There's no auto <laughs> <laughs> or inflation tube for that matter. Uh, sp- speaking of that, um, what does autopilot actually do? Does that just maintain a, a stable flight as best as it can compute on things? So you're able to kind of get up, stretch your legs, go to the bathroom, do what you got to do, or do you have to yeah, remain in the, the cockpit? The, it, it depends on the aircraft. Our aircraft is, is pretty advanced. Um, it syncs up to the navigational course that's in the computer system. So it knows, and actually um, our autopilot is, it's made to be, to operate the aircraft as efficiently as possible. So um, it'll actually go up and down plus or minus 50 feet while you're in cruise so that the engines don't have to spool up or spool down to maintain a specific airspeed. Uh, so it kind of manages it in the most efficient way. It's locked onto the navigation course. Uh, even when you're on approach, it's a different kind of navigation. It's uh, an instrument landing system and a glide slope that'll, that uh, guides you, your, you vertically to the runway. So the instrument landing system is a localizer that you can track laterally. And the glide slope tracks you vertically and you get these kind of crosshairs that lead you down to the end of the runway. So the autopilot will lock onto those. Um, and it, and also it, we have an auto thrust system. So it knows when to spool the engines back, when to spool them up to, to maintain the airspeed. Uh, so it kind of takes care of everything. And 90% of the time we're monitoring it and it, of course, we have to tell it what to do. We have to tell it which course to lock onto. Right. Um, and if we're not locked onto a, a nav course, let's say air traffic control is giving us headings, we have, you know, air traffic control will tell us, you know, fly heading 360, and we have to dial in 360, and then the airplane turns to heading 360. So there's still a pilot input. You still have to know how it works when it's not working properly, and so you could take the appropriate actions to, to fix it. You mentioned before the um, the waypoints and the navigation is all done computing. Do you still kind of go back as part of refresher training just in case you happen to have a, you know, a navigational failure? Do you still go back to the paper maps and, and able to read and, and plan out your, your flight that way? Uh, so we can read. Well, there's no paper maps anymore, at least at our airline. Everything's on the iPad. Right. All of our, char- all of our charts are on the iPad. Um but if uh, if there is a GPS failure, um, then we do have old school navigation. It's not really part of the training because all it really is is tuning in frequencies, and then the airplane will lock on. You you tune in the frequency of the navigational facility, and you tune in a course that you want to go, and the airplane will find its way there. Got it. Which is for me in, in my little tin can was watching the bubbles and the balls move in the right way. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so kind of touching back on some other movies. Are you familiar with Catch Me If You Can? Yes. yes. How do you concur do you concur doctor? <laughs> how uh, <laughs> how possible is it for somebody uh, clearly 
probably not as easy as it was back in the 60s when this took place. But uh, is it easy for somebody to fake being a pilot? Uh, I don't see how, <laughs> especially nowadays. You can't even get through security if you're right. not, you know, if you don't have a ticket. Uh, very highly unlikely. And then, you know, it's, uh, you could easily get a pilot uniform from a, from a costume store. Right. Um, but, uh, once you get in the flight deck, you, everybody has their duties to do. And if you don't have an inkling of which button to press, when you're kind of going to stand out like a sore thumb. Figured as much. I mean, especially given mm-hmm. post nine eleven, everything is insanely secure. Yes. Um, yeah. what are your, your thoughts on, on Conair? Conair, uh, is that the one when they, uh, went down in the Rockies and they had to eat each other? No, that was, uh, no. I think that was alive and that was the, oh, yes. the, the soccer team, the South American soccer team. Conair's with, uh, yes. Nicholas Cage and, uh, I don't think I've seen that one. John Malkovich. One of, one of my <laughs> favorite, more favorite that. movies from, uh, from Cage along with the rock. Mm. Um, so on your off time, what do you do to, I guess, decompress and de-stress from, from all the nonsense and stuff you deal with as a pilot? Uh, I actually work, I feel like I work a lot harder at home than I do, uh, when I'm at work, to be honest with you. Um, work can be stressful, um, but like 90% of the time you're doing the same things in the airplane you're going to different places but you're pressing the same buttons uh all the procedures are the same so you land you go to the hotel and so you might have one flight that's five or six hours you might have two or three flights that are two hours each but at the end of the day you're in a nice quiet hotel room uh whereas uh say for instance my wife is at home with the three kids chasing them around in two different schools and then we have the the four-year-old um, so I, I always say that she works a lot harder than I do. Um, but when I'm home, I, I, I help out with the kids, with the kids schooling. Um, if we need something fixed, I'm like, we joke around that she's the teacher and I'm the principal and the maintenance guy and the groundskeeper and the custodian. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, there's always something to be done here. What, uh, what hobbies do you have to, to maintain your sanity? Uh, we talked about the hockey before I try to do that as much as possible now. Uh, obviously, because of the pandemic, those opportunities are getting uh, are few and far between. Um, but I do enjoy uh, woodworking. Uh, I have a little shop in my garage, and uh, you know, I make little little trinkets, you know, around the house. Uh, some games. I've, I've built some furniture, um, some outdoor couches, and sliding barnwood doors, and uh, stuff like that, just to just to keep me busy. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty envious of your, your garage <laughs> and the uh, shop that you have going on there. Yeah, it's uh, it's like my church, really. <laughs> <laughs> Jumping back to, to piloting, um, what are, I guess, some of the more hair-raising experiences you've had as a pilot? Mm. Um, well, I have the, the most... The closest I've come to anything happening um, was when I was at ExpressJet. I was based in Houston. And um, the way Houston Intercontinental Airport is laid out, 
they had two runways that they used for departures to the south. They you'd usually take off to the south. They also had three parallel runways that they would use for landings going to usually uh, you would land to the to the west. So now if you're not based in Houston, it's it's kind of um, counterintuitive what they do if you had to go to the east after departure. So in our case, I was taken off at the same time on the left-hand runway, and there was an American Airlines taken off the right-hand runway, and they needed to go east. So if you're heading south after departure, your intuition would say, oh, I got to go east. I'm going to turn left. It's the shortest distance from south to east. But if you did that in Houston, you would turn into the departing traffic from the other runway and also the arrival corridor. Crap. <laughs> um, so they would always tell you when you were taking off the right-hand runway that you're going to turn right to a heading of east or an easterly heading wherever you needed to go. But you had to turn right. You had to turn the long way around. And that allowed you time to get up, get enough altitude where you could overfly the arrival corridor and you don't interfere with anything. Got it. So, so, so I was taking off the left-hand side of the side runway. American was on the right-hand side runway, both taken off towards the south, and they had gotten a right that right long turn, 270-degree turn, out to the east. Um, now, in each aircraft, there is um, traffic collision avoidance systems. So there's a computer in each airplane that talks to each other. And if they sense that you're getting close... Uh, it'll tell one airplane to do a certain maneuver, climb, and the other one to descend. It'll calculate. It has its algorithms, and it'll calculate a resolution so you don't hit each other. And that overrides any air traffic control instruction that you have because your number one priority is not to hit anything. Right. <laughs> um, so usually it happens you know, in the air not as soon as you lift off. So we took off, and uh, we got an alert from our computer. It says the first thing it says is traffic. Okay. So that you know that there's somebody in your airspace close to you. So I look at the screen and it highlights where this person is or where this other aircraft is. I was the captain at the time. Uh, my first officer hits me in the shoulder and says, look at that. And he looks out his window and I see the American airlines aircraft turning into us. Oh, shit. And as soon as it did that, our controller said, descend now. Descend now, we're at 700 feet. I don't have a lot of space to descend. So, And literally, this all happened like within a span of a couple seconds. So as right. soon as we got the alert to descend, they had verified with the air traffic controller, hey, are we supposed to turn left or right? And the controller was like, no, you're supposed to turn right. And so I kind of pushed the, the yoke over so that we wouldn't descend but level off because I saw that they were still climbing. Right. And at that time they had corrected themselves and we saw them bank away from us. But that is the closest I've ever seen another aircraft in the air to <laughs> me. <laughs> um, speaking about the you know, time and space, what's for people that aren't familiar or have no idea what it is to, to be a pilot or in the pilot seat, what is it like for the separation uh, in, in time and space? I mean, how far away do other planes have to be from you? It depends on the size of the aircraft. So there's different categories, uh, light aircraft, uh, narrow body aircraft, heavy aircraft. So the wide, wide bodies like the triple sevens, uh, 
and the 747s and the 380s are an even bigger they're their own class they're the supers um the spacing that they have between each one is dependent on if you are the same class as uh, an aircraft next to you or if you are lighter or heavier then they separate you more so it all depends and once you get into cruise you're separated by a thousand feet um so and every aircraft going one direction uh like if you're going westbound you'll always be at an odd altitude if you're coming eastbound you'll always be at an even altitude and so you're separated by you know a thousand the the crossing traffic can be a thousand feet separation what um kind of touching back on the, the question before about your favorite airports what are some of the airports that you have a an actual disdain for having to to land at whether it be from the um, actual approach which as you've already said is more computer control but just dealing with yeah. the, the traffic pattern on in the taxiway and stuff um i don't know if i have a disdain for a specific airport um it, it, it's pretty much every airport pretty much follows the same general procedures so there are um airports in south america that um i haven't been to yet that are really difficult with terrain um close to the airport there is there's always a procedure to safely operate around uh the terrain in the specific area i don't i don't know if i have a disdain for any specific airport uh, there's no airport that i am uh now i that being said i might have an overnight in uh, San Juan and then San Lucia and then Hartford, Connecticut. And, you know, there's, there's always for, for every Aruba overnight, there's nothing against anybody who's from Hartford, but given the choice between Aruba and Hartford, I'm always going to choose Aruba. I think a lot of people agree with that. One. <laughs> <laughs> what, um, what about airports that are unique either, um, in their pattern? I think my kid used to watch something on Amazon or Netflix about airports and, technology involved in airports and i think it was atlantic atlanta airport atlanta international is mm-hmm. unique in the way that their traffic pattern is the way the planes can land they can line land like three planes simultaneously um are any other airports that you kind of land into that are, that are unique like that no so uh atlanta hartsfield is uh they have i think they have five parallel runways now um, yeah, I believe it's five. Um, like I said, Houston Intercontinental had three. Um, Dallas Fort Worth has has a bunch. There's there's always the the bigger the much bigger markets have you know those simultaneous uh, approaches. Um, as far as unique procedures, um, I mean it's not really terribly unique. Like there's certain Airports that have certain tendencies that'll keep you high. So um, Atlanta is one of them. So they'll keep you high when you're coming in so that they can get the departures out. And then once they clear you for the approach, you kind of have to get down in a hurry. Sometimes Kennedy could be like that, depending on the landing configuration. Um, but the real, uh, the, 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 the fun starts when you get into engine failures where you're taking off and your aircraft might not have the performance to uh, clear obstacles like mountains or buildings on one engine. And so there are specific 
procedures in place for those airports that have, in case you have an engine failure, you're going to do this to this altitude, then you're going to turn here down the valley because you don't, you can't go straight. Um, St. Martin is like that. That's a really cool airport um, to land in. It's famous for its beach that's right on the uh, approach end of the runway and people get to hang out and, and uh, right at the airport fence and watch the aircraft land. I was wondering where, um, what airport that was. I've seen the videos of that. They're like almost yeah, so, touching down on the beach. Right, right. <laughs> and so everyone sees the arrival part of it, but you don't really see the departure part of it. The departure is there's mountains right off the end of the runway. And so you have to take off and turn right. And if you lose an engine on takeoff, which is the worst possible time to lose an engine, um, you, there is uh, an overriding, at least for us, for our aircraft, um, we have to override what the airplane will do because the airplane will only guide you to bank at, a, at 15 degrees. You have to bank sharper than that to get through the valley, out of the islands, and on your way. Um, or if you have an engine failure to come back around, but everybody sees the, the arrival part of it. They don't see the departure end of it, which is much more entertaining for the pilot. The simulators that you guys get into for your, your annual training and your biannual, biannual training, um, how hard did they push you? Did they make it insanely unrealistic just to, to see how you react and, <clears throat> and can keep yourself composed or do they kind of make it more of to the, the real actual catastrophes that could happen in flight. The, the philosophies over the last 15 years have definitely changed. When I got into it, it was the philosophy was a lot different. They wanted to see your skill level uh, as a pilot going through all these things. But in the real world, you're not single pilot, you're a team. So the, when, when I started, it was frowned upon for you to help. Like if your guy was forgot to press one button or set up a certain thing and you reminded him, well, that was looked down upon on both of you. Now it's much, much more realistic in the scenarios that they give you. Um, and there was no real guidance back then. So if you had an instructor with a bad day, he'd give you an engine failure on one and an engine fire simultaneously on the other, and you had to figure it out. And, uh, so that, that wasn't realistic training. Um, the way you operated through it wasn't realistic. Um, but now the scenarios, it's, we've gone more towards, uh, we call it CRM, crew resource management, how you uh, interact as a crew. And the crew doesn't even just include the cockpit crew. It could, you know, if you're having a medical issue in the back, the flight attendants are part of that crew. Your dispatcher on the ground is part of that crew. Your, the air traffic controller with other traffic is part of that crew. So you, it's, it's more of a team effort in all aspects, taking in all the variables. Um, so the way our training is set up is uh, for our, re we call it recurrent training that we go for every year. The first day is, you know, getting policies down, making sure that you, you haven't strayed away from the, the company's policies. And then day two is the engine fires, the failures, all the, all the fun stuff. And then day three is they just put you in a simulator and they give you a flight and you operate it just like a normal flight and they'll give you normal everyday distractions and you'll have to figure out a problem together using all the resources that you have just like you would on a real day. So uh, it's it's gotten, uh, I don't want to say easier, but more realistic Got to it. the tools that you have. So do 
do you normally fly with the uh, standard crew of uh, at least a, a unit of people that may be interchangeable and it might not be the same person, same three people in the cockpit for every flight, but you know, a team of like six people that kind of rotates around or is it just, kind <clears throat> no, of- it's, a, it's just a two person cockpit. So it's just a captain and first officer. And then, uh, the number of flight attendants depends on the, on this, on the number of passengers we have. Uh, our airplanes have anywhere from 150 to 200 uh, passengers on board. Um, so everybody is interchangeable at any, at any time. So usually we're on the captain, the first officer are on the same trip. So we'll stay together for the three or four days or however long the trip is. Um, the next week, it'll be a different guy. Or if they need to pull me to go uh, fly something else, they'll get another person, another pilot to uh, to fill in for me. We're all plug and play. It's all uh, we all operate the same way. But the training itself is is all done on a team dynamic, which you know, like you said, it makes sense. It's the more yep. real world way of training, and that's the kind of way yep. I think everybody, any type of profession, needs to be training in is to do it in a real world fashion. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I one of the things I like about Jersey is driving down the turnpike along Newark Airport, and on a nice clear day, you can usually see four or five planes lined up on the descent. Yep. You uh, you did mention a little bit about kind of bouncing around. Where where have you lived since you become a pilot? Um, I've well after college, I moved back to New Jersey, and I was a flight instructor in uh, Morristown and Lincoln Park. Uh, that was the summer of 05, uh, summer fall of 05. I got hired at Express Jet Airlines uh, the 1st of uh, January 2006, and we stayed in Jersey for a couple of years. Uh, and then we started our, an operation out of California, Ontario, California. And so my wife and I, before the kids, we decided to have a little adventure. And um, she worked for Barnes & Noble at the time, and they needed a store manager out in Newport Beach, and it was a new base, so the airline was going to pay for the move, so we moved out there uh, for 10 months, and in 2008, when everything crashed, we uh, <laughs> we had the decision to either move back to New Jersey and live paycheck to paycheck, because I was uh, a first officer at a regional airline, and the pay was not very good. Uh, or we could move down to Texas, to Houston, where the cost of living was uh, was much better, and we could afford to pay off some student loans. We could afford a house. We could start a family. And so that's what we did. We were in Houston for nine years. I got hired by uh, JetBlue, and I was living in Houston, based in Kennedy. Uh, so every week I had to fly uh, up to Kennedy to start my trips, and then after the trips, fly home back to Houston, and since JetBlue does a lot of red eyes, I was bidding on red eye trips just so that I could commute in the same day as my trip. Otherwise, if I had an early report time on a trip, I have to come in the day before. So that kills, you know, a day off. Right. And since I was so junior at the time, I was a, I was a new hire at JetBlue. I didn't have a lot of time off. So I was flying red eye trips during the week and some weekends, and then I would come home for a day or two. I was a zombie, and then I had to go back and do it again. So after uh, I hit, uh, our pay is based on a scale. So however many years of service you have, that your pay is dictated by the contract. So once I hit year three pay, I was like, I, I think we can make New Jersey work. The plan was to pay off all the student loans while we were in Houston and then move back. But right. 
that lifestyle was just not working for me. So then we moved to Jersey, back to Jersey three years ago. So from North Dakota in school, we came to New Jersey, then short stint in California, down to Houston for nine years, and now we're back in Jersey. How does um, how does that work? Are, are you, like with some fire departments, they do like 24 hours on and 72 hours off, things like that. Um, mm-hmm. How does a pilot schedule work out? So that too changed uh, after the crash of Colgan up in uh, Buffalo. Um, there was fatigue was mentioned as a contributing factor to that uh, accident. And so that kind of um, lit the fire to revamp all of our uh, duty limitations, our flight time limitations, our minimum rest overnights. Everything kind of changed as a result of that accident. And so now it's... Um, it, it depends. We actually have a table that we look at. It's dependent on what your start time is, how many flights you have that day. You could either do, you know, eight hours of flying or nine hours of flying. Your duty day can be no more than, um, I think it's uh, 14 or 15 hours. Um, then you need 12 hours rest. And that's, it used to be eight hours was the minimum rest. And the rest started when you set the parking brake uh, on the airplane. So all the travel all the post-flight duties, all the travel to the hotel, back to the airport, that was all considered part of your rest. So there were some airports, uh, when I was at Express Jet Airlines, we were, uh, we'd do a lot of Mexico flying in Morelia, Mexico, Morelia, Mexico, uh, was like a 45 minute van ride. So on an eight hour overnight, you were lucky to get four hours of sleep opportunity. And so now they factor in that you have to have eight hours behind the door of a hotel room sleep opportunity. Um, so it's kind of, it's a little bit more complicated, but it's also a little bit, uh, more realistic, um, for your rest and duty regulations. What exactly do post-flight duties consist of? So that depends on if the airplane is turning around and going back out with another crew or if it's, uh, staying wherever it is for the night. If it's, uh, staying in for the night, then you have to secure it. So you shut everything down. You have to make sure um, the airplane, all the systems are shut down properly and the batteries are turned off because you can't drain the batteries. Um, and then also the first officer has to do another walk around after the flight to make sure you, nothing happened. The door didn't pop open while you were in flight. Not that that happens often, but you just want to make sure that the airplane is set and ready to go for the next crew the next morning to take out. So kind of to jump back to you and, and your, your personal life, you mentioned your wife a few times. Um, how long have you guys been married? Uh, we've been married for uh, 16 years. Commendable. You're younger I, than me, and you've been married for almost as long <laughs> as my wife and I have been married. <laughs> Where you, uh, did you guys meet at school? or? or? Yeah, so she, um, she was my next-door neighbor in the dorm when I moved out to uh, North Dakota. So we met in August of 01. And uh, we started dating by the spring of '02, and we married. I, I graduated college and got married in the same weekend. <laughs> Talk about a busy weekend. <laughs> yeah, well, it was actually my my mother is deathly afraid of flying, and so she's here in New Jersey. Right. So she said, "If you um, <laughs> if you want me to," she said, "You have to choose. I will come to North Dakota to see your, you graduate." or to see you get married, not both. 
So I'm like, oh, well, if that's the case. I'll one-up you. <laughs> we'll do it in one shot. <laughs> do it all in one, all in one weekend. <laughs> and then I, I didn't get a honeymoon because uh, my interview was for to be a flight instructor at University of North Dakota. Was, so we got married on a Saturday. Um, and then Monday, I graduated Friday. I got married Sunday or Saturday. And then my interview for an instructor was on Monday. How long did you have to wait to do that honeymoon? Uh, we just took a, I mean, we were broke college kids, college grads. <laughs> we didn't have any money. So we just did a, a road trip up to, uh, up Lake Superior to Duluth. And there were some state parks up there that we just went for the weekend and, and hung out up there. I hope you've had a chance to kind of do something a little better <laughs> since then, at least a vacation. Yes. Yes. Enjoy yes. the company of each other. I mean, you guys were out in California. Where exactly you said it was, uh, where in California were you? Uh, as so far the, as north the, the northern Cal, SoCal, it, it was Southern California. I was in Orange County, so our, okay. our 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 base was Ontario, California, and then we lived in Aliso Viejo, which is about eight miles from uh, Laguna Beach. Got it. Nice sights. Very nice, beautiful out there. <laughs> <laughs> um, you mentioned that you, when you were in Texas, you you got to be part of um, organization for Black Aerospace Professionals. What? Yes. How did you get involved with that? And what exactly did it, did that, um, I guess, venture entail? So when I, um, I mean, my love of aviation started uh, probably, I was probably in second grade. We took our first vacation down to Hilton Head. And um, that was my first taste of flying. And I never really kind of, I kind of put it in the back of my head. It'd be cool to be a pilot. Nobody in my family flew. Nobody in my circles knew anything about how to mentor me uh or even that the opportunity existed it was kind of like oh you want to be a pilot you got to be in the military and uh, when i yeah exactly <laughs> uh which is another favorite movie by the way um so when i started flight lessons and i you know my flight instructor had a college degree i think it was from purdue when i first started uh flight lessons in white plains and I was like, oh, I could get a college degree. That was really my first interaction with somebody who was civilian trained. Um, so also uh, how I got into it is when you're applying for uh, a, a major airline job, United or Delta, there are probably 18,000 regional airline pilots whose resume looks exactly the same. Uh, so you need to do something to kind of distinguish yourself from from the crowd, as I'm sure any other um, highly sought after position is in the same same scenario. So I was um, I got in touch with um, one of the uh, at one of the job fairs that I had gone to. I connected with the um, the guy who was running. They do what they call an APIS or Aviation Professionals in Schools, and he said we're always looking for volunteers or the organization of black aerospace professionals. Um, we just go into, uh, predominantly minority, uh, kids, people of color and not necessarily underprivileged, but we just want more of a representation in the aviation career. So we would go educate them on all kinds of aviation opportunities. So we had dispatchers, we had flight attendants, we had pilots. Sometimes we had huge groups, sometimes it was just me. 
And we would go into these schools, elementary schools, middle schools, high schools, just to educate the kids that the opportunity is there if you want it. And that was something that I never had that I wish I had. And people say, oh, it's, it's expensive to learn to fly. It's, it's totally out of the realm of possibility for me. But when I looked on, on my experience, I didn't, I, I came from the same, I came from a broken family. I didn't have any money for college. And it was just kind of a path that I kind of nosed my way through and, and found success with. So I wanted to kind of give back to that, uh, uh, that opportunity, that mentorship, that, uh, that the opportunity is there. And it's, it's a viable profession for anybody, really. That's awesome. You still yeah. work with them or do those presentations at any time? I, I haven't uh, in a number of years. It was the, the, the guy I knew uh, was doing it in and around Houston. Um, and then, like I said, once I got hired at JetBlue and I was flying, you know, red eyes and I was a zombie, that all kind of fell by the wayside. And then we moved back to Jersey and I haven't been – uh, in touch with anybody for uh, for the New Jersey area, I would I would do it in a heartbeat. I had a blast doing it. It was nice. just it's just one of those things where um, life kind of took off after that. It's it's definitely easy to, easier to speak about things that you have a passion about, and, and you can convey that when the passion comes through. Uh, it's, it can definitely be very <laughs> persuasive. So it, it's awesome when you do that, and obviously given the, the climate and schools for the most part not being actively attended it's clearly not a, an yeah. option for now but hopefully after we get past the current yeah virus going around um you can get back and do it because that, that's a really awesome thing um absolutely any interest in, in moving back to one of the, any of the bigger airlines or are you really content with where you're at i i tried like hell to get on with uh, Delta, United, American, the legacy airlines, those are the guys that they, ha- they all have global networks. You can go all over the world. They have the best benefits, the best pay. And I thought that that was like the mountaintop. And so when I got hired at JetBlue, well, first of all, my number one goal was getting out of ExpressJet. I love the people I work with, but the regional industry as a whole is, it, it's kind of run like, like, I hate to say a racket, but it's kind of a scheme, you know, pilots are coming in, they don't want to spend their career there. So they get taken advantage of a lot of times. Uh, the schedules are grueling. The rest are, are the overnights are short. And so, um, my number one goal is, was to get out of express jet. And when I was at JetBlue, I kept my applications updated at, uh, United at Delta and American. And, uh, they never called. And I, at first, I was uh, a little put off by it, but you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. Now they're all in in pretty big trouble, and JetBlue is not doing. Nobody's doing fantastic right, right. now, but they're of the you know when you're when your party's getting chased by a bear, you don't have to be uh, faster than a bear. You just have to be faster than your <laughs> not fattest the friend. <laughs> not the slowest one, right? <laughs> so um, I know I'm. I'm, I'm, I'm content where I am now. And now I could, I, like I said, I was supposed to upgrade to captain. Um, so I know I have a thousand people, uh, 1200 pilots below me on the seniority list. If I were to go now, I'd be at back the at bottom the bottom. Again, right. And if layoffs come, that's where they come up from the, the bottom of the list. Right. You mentioned regional a few times. What's the difference from regional, uh, 
flight uh, companies and, and what you're doing now? So regional, very few regionals own their own aircraft. What they are is a contract company. So United uh, needs five flights a day from Monroe, Louisiana to Houston. They're not going to put, you know, a 757 or even a 737 on that route. They won't fill it up. Got it. Um, so they will put out a bid that says we need this flying done. And, you know, they'll, the bid will specify whatever amount of flying that they need done. Um, the regional airlines will say, well, we have, we could do that for X amount of dollars. And there's, you know, maybe some of them have gone out of business this year, but I mean, there might be 15 different regional airlines. And because of all the mergers in the recent years, there's only United Delta and American that need regional flying. So you have these 15 companies bidding on three contracts of flying. It's always going to go to the lowest bidder. And so the regionals just keep trying to undercut each other. And at the end of the day, it's just contract. So if that contract is up and you don't get it, you don't get it. You don't get yeah. that flying anymore. So it's not very secure. Whereas a JetBlue or if you're at United or American or Delta, they sell their own tickets. They sell their own seats. They own their own aircraft. It's a much more secure business plan, business Got model. It. So I think one of the last questions I'll pass you about is um, I've asked you about the, the hairiest situation you've kind of been in. What Any crazy things happen in flight, not necessarily with the plane, but maybe more with the passengers? No, knock on wood, I've, I've been pretty <laughs> lucky with my passengers. Um, I, I had to kick off one lady in Milwaukee a number of years ago before we uh, closed the gate because the flight attendant wanted to make room in an overhead bin and she touched her bag and the lady went off on her and um, the flight attendant said either she goes or I go and I can't go without my flight attendant. So <laughs> there was only one, one option there and she was inebriated and, and a lot of times they'll, the, you know, the, especially at edge blue, you're, you're supported a lot. They have, people in place to deal with that. If there's a passenger issue, there's, there are people that are trained um, that are just come in for that purpose. And right. if it gets escalated, there are law enforcement personnel. So I don't really deal with much of it anymore, but I mean, there was, I mean, there's nothing real, real crazy Got it. in my experience. Anyway, I was hoping for some fun shenanigans. Anyway, um, I've, <laughs> I've sold you for a little more than an hour. Um, and I know your time is precious, especially when you're on your off time. Uh, with your your family and needing your sleep for flying so i want to thank you very much for for chatting with me for this last hour and anything you want any parting words any any words of wisdom anything you want to entice say to entice people to get into the piloting industry uh well first uh, i'll thank you for having me i've never done one of these before so it's uh it was a fun experience and we haven't chatted in a while so it's fun <laughs> to catch up with it's you been, it's been a while <laughs> <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah, get out there and fly. It's, it's accessible to, uh, to anybody, uh, any podunk little airport has a flight school. And, uh, even if you just want to take a discovery flight, um, which is, you know, you go up with an instructor for a couple minutes and go have some fun. I've done a number of those even up and down the Hudson river is a lot of fun. Um, I, I couldn't imagine doing anything else. Awesome. Well, thank you again very much. And, um, Stay safe and travel safe. 
Will do. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of Adding Context. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at addingcontext.com. You can also support our show via Patreon. Send us feedback and show ideas to podcast at addingcontext.com.